Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here with Peter Wittick. Peter is uh, a professor at the University of Toronto, and we are in Las Vegas, where he recently presented at the AWS reInvent AI Summit. Peter, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. Uh, so uh, we're going to dive into the topic of your talk, which uh, was quantum computing. But before we do that, uh, tell us a little bit about your, your background, how you got started working in quantum computing and machine learning and the, the nexus of those two fields. Okay, so I ended up working on, on quantum machine learning mainly by accident. So I was, I was trained as a mathematician. And um, I, was, I specialized in the area of mathematics that provides the foundations for quantum mechanics. It's functional analysis. But I never really got into quantum mechanics because, you know, every time I looked at it, I started from an axiomatic description and then you don't get very far. And, and I was tired of, of doing theory. So I, I jumped into computer science and, and machine learning in particular way before machine learning was a sexy topic. It was more than 10, 10 years ago. And then I was developing algorithms, uh, learning algorithms for supercomputers, uh, GPUs and, and large clusters. It was way before TensorFlow or deep learning. And uh, by accident, I start, ended up working in, uh, in a supercomputing center just for a short while, just for three months. And... Uh, Next to me, there was this quantum physicist sitting, and he, he dragged me into doing some quantum simulations on supercomputers. And it was super exciting. So we finished the project, so we published a paper, and that's, that was when I started thinking about, you know, is there anything between machine learning and quantum physics? And this was in um, 2012, uh, over six years ago. So I started thinking about it and I found some papers which started to explore this area, but there were maybe a dozen papers on this topic altogether. And, and then in the summer of uh, 2013, so one year later, there were three papers published which offered an exponential advantage if you use uh, quantum computers. And um, I read the papers, they were difficult to digest because I was new to quantum mechanics. And from a, from a machine learning perspective, they made absolutely no sense. So <laughs> I got upset and I started blogging about it and, uh, you know, just me trying to understand the papers and highlighting why, why this is a bit distorted from the perspective of learning theory. And uh, that landed me a contract to write a book on quantum machine learning. So I wrote the first book on this subject. And ever since I've been trying to convince people what would be the interesting directions to look at when you use quantum resources in machine learning. Okay, interesting, interesting. A lot to dig into there. Uh, but before we dive into the machine learning side of things, you mentioned that the foundation of quantum computing is functional analysis. Uh, it's, yeah, it's more about the foundations of quantum mechanics. Oh, of quantum mechanics, yeah. okay, okay. Well, while we're there, what is functional analysis and how does it play into quantum mechanics? 
So it's it's uh, like taking linear algebra to the next level. So here you talk about uh, possibly infinite dimensional spaces. So you have you still have vector spaces, but you're no longer restricted to finite dimensional spaces. Uh, that's what it is about, and it's less relevant for quantum computing. Okay. Because in quantum computing, you actually use finite dimensional spaces. So these spaces are very similar to the to the high dimensional spaces you use in deep learning. The main difference is that uh, your spaces don't use real numbers; they use complex numbers. And um, you know, when you look at the real space in 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 deep learning, it doesn't have um, further fine structure, so it doesn't really have subspaces that you work with. You just take the whole space and then you do your learning there. Whereas in in uh, quantum computing, it's very important that. Uh, your system is composed of qubits. They uh, form subspaces there are, and there are interesting things happening between the subspaces. And so is that where you started your presentation and talking about qubits? No, and, no, uh... no, 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 no. So, <laughs> no, because the audience is very different, right? So, so these are people who build fun applications with AWS and they might know some machine learning, but maybe not. So my talk was... A lot more pragmatic. So I was I was focusing on what is it that you can build with quantum computers today without necessarily understanding the underlying quantum mechanics. So I was giving building blocks that these people can use to build applications and start thinking about incorporating quantum computing into the products and the services they want to develop. Because you know quantum computers are already out there and, and you can start using them. There are at least three quantum computers that you can access for free. And all it takes is, is a Python API and an internet connection, and you can start using them. And this is the message I wanted to get across. Mm. So now I've been under the impression from previous discussions that while there are uh, these quantum computers that are out there and available, uh, they're not yet powerful enough. We don't have enough qubits for them to do anything useful. Is, it sounds like that's a maybe a little bit of a, a misimpression. Uh, that is correct, but it, <laughs> but the story is is a lot. It's more... correct that that's incorrect, or it's correct that no. they're not useful. <laughs> so so whatever we have today is uh, either very easy to simulate classically, yeah. or or at the verge of getting some advantage in certain applications. Okay, that's not the point. The point is how fast development happens in quantum computing. Hmm. So yes, uh, these early quantum devices are very small scale. It's true. But if you start thinking about it now, what you can do with them in two or three years down the road, the hardware will be there to give you a tangible advantage in a couple of application areas. Right. And, and they will remain noisy and imperfect for many, many years to come, at least for a decade. That's not the point. The point is that even these imperfect, noisy quantum computers can, can give you very, very exciting advantages. So it's not going to be an exponential speed up or anything like that. It's going to be some constant time factor um, that you can expect from them. And when you think about that, that's very, very similar to the advantage that GPUs give you in deep learning. That's also just a constant time factor. GPUs never claimed to, uh, to give you an exponential advantage. And yet they are tremendously useful. So that's that's going to be the, the, the kind of advantage that you will get from quantum computers two, three, four years down the road. 
Okay. And so when you start kind of explaining this to folks, uh, how did you start your presentation? Are you, are you describing the, the capabilities of these computers or how did you progress through? I was very aggressive. I wanted to sell quantum computing to these people. <laughs> so I, I started uh, with, you know, why, why do we bother with quantum computing in the first place? So first you have to sell people in the long-term vision, which is 20 years down the road. But that's what we want to build. So, you know, that, then when we have perfect quantum computers, then we can do all sorts of material simulation to get, for instance, room temperature superconductors and revolutionize energy transfer. We can find much better photovoltaic cells. We can develop personalized drugs based on your genetic makeup. And you can even mine bitcoins faster, you know. All of these <laughs> things will happen, but 20 years from now. And and then no, I, is is this one of these uh, kind of perpetually twenty years from now? Or? It's this perpetually twenty years from now. It's like fusion <laughs> power and artificial general intelligence. Right. So right. we have these three technologies on exactly the same day. <laughs> yes, that's right. So so that's when I pulled pulled pull back the audience that you know today. Right. Uh, we have these imperfect quantum computers, and they have a problem, and the problem is that they are looking for use cases. And then I argued that that machine learning is one of the main use cases. Mm -hmm. uh, and so let's maybe talk a little bit about the, the, the current state. What characterizes uh, these computers uh, that are available today relative to what we expect to see in, you know, quote unquote, 20 years? All right, let's, let's walk us through in, in three steps. Okay. Let's take a look at what uh, digital computers do. Okay. Then let's take a look at what the perfect quantum computer will do. And then let's Walk take a look at what we can do today. Okay. So when you look at any digital computer, whether it's your phone, your laptop, your workstation, or your little Alexa device, it, it uses the same operations. So what you do is you have some algorithm, say a learning algorithm, and then you decompose it into elementary chunks, additions, multiplications, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so first of all, you have to do this, this decomposition of the problem. So if the problem is difficult to decompose, then it's going to be difficult to do on a digital computer. And second, every operation is deterministic. So when right. you add one and one, you will always get two on any of these devices. Well, there was that Pentium bug. Except for a couple of chipsets <laughs> that Intel created. That's right. They abused their monopoly to, to push crappy chips on, the, on their users. But in any case, um, it should be deterministic. And um, when you think about how it works, how you create these elementary deterministic operations, what you have is bit strings, mm -hmm. and you can transform any bit string into any other bit string. So in this sense, digital computers are universal. And then, you know, these operations will translate to, operation, uh, to these operations like multiplication, addition, and so on. Now, if you think about a quantum computer, what it does, it does not operate on bit strings. What it operates is probability distributions over bit strings. So quantum computation is nothing but the transformation of this probability distribution over bit strings. And so this is one major difference. 
And, and now every time you run the calculation, you will get a slightly different result because what you are doing is you are sampling a probability distribution mm -hmm. as opposed to having a deterministic final result. And, and so you describe that as a probability distribution over bit strings, but is each of the bits a distribution as well? Is it a distribution over distributions? It's, uh, it's easier to think about it as just a distribution over bit strings. Okay. There are subtleties here, but let's stick with this easier version. Okay. And so this is one, one big difference. Quantum computers are quintessentially probabilistic. Okay. And the second difference is that, you know, when you have your, your phone's CPU or your laptop CPU, uh, then the CPU has 64-bit registers. Right. So, so this is the register where you do these logical operations to create these arithmetic operations that you use. And this is, where, this is the reason why you are splitting up your problem into these tiny operations. Mm -hmm. Whereas we expect from a quantum computer to have a lot more than 64 qubits. We expect it to have thousands and hundreds of thousands of qubits. And the reason that we cannot stop at just 64 is because a quantum computation is global. It considers the entire problem at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's very good at solving problems which are difficult to decompose. So mm -hmm. if it's easy to decompose, then don't even bother thinking about quantum computers. If it's a problem where it's important and you look at the entire space at the same time, that's a good use case. So and is, is the, the language around uh, this decomposition the, the same as, um, you know, we might kind of throw around for... Uh, kind of classical distributed computing ideas like embarrassingly parallel and things like that? Or uh, is there a, a spe more specific language around you know let's, what let's, we call decompos something let's, that's decomposable? Let's, let's, let's take a look at this problem. Okay. So anything that can be decomposed or parallelized or uh, executed in a sequence is, is just easy to do on digital computers. So the specific example that we can look at is, is the traveling salesman problem. Mm -hmm. where you have a number of cities and they are connected by roads and, uh, and you want to find the minimum, um, the shortest distance that connects all cities, right? And the way you would do it on a, on a digital computer, whether it's just a single core, a multi-core CPU or a GPU or a, or, a, or a cluster of GPUs, it doesn't matter, is that you would have to evaluate every possible combination of these roads. So this problem does not naturally decompose. You have to actually evaluate all possibility. Mm -hmm. And there are exponentially many possibilities as you keep increasing the number of cities. Mm -hmm. So that's why this problem is hard to solve on a digital computer. Whereas what you would do on a quantum computer, you would create a uniform distribution over all possible solutions. And then what you do, what the quantum algorithm does, is that it transforms this uniform distribution into a peak distribution above the optimal solution. And the way it can do it is by, by using quantum effects like entanglement and interference to find out you know, these global correlations that tell you where you should peak your distribution. And then you look at your outcome, you measure the, the system, which means that you pull out a sample of this probability distribution, and then you get one solution. Mm. You don't know if it's optimal, so you, you repeat it a few times and then you pick the one which is the best among those solutions. Mm -hmm. So that's what it means, it's probabilistic. You have to keep repeating it and sampling it. And this is what it means to be global, that it can pull out these strange correlations that you would not be able to consider on a digital computer. 
And so it strikes me that it's not a foregone conclusion that, A, we can create a global solution to the traveling salesman problem, for example. Have we already figured that out or is that a work now, in this progress? Is, now, this is a super important question <laughs> because uh, everything that I told you so far applies to this holy grail quantum computer that we will have exactly 20 years from now. Ah, right. With infinite qubits. With and... infinite number of qubits. Okay. Yeah, but but the, the number of qubits is just one thing. So the, the quantum computers that we have today mm-hmm. um, are flawed in two ways. One is that you know you have a small number of qubits. So with this universal model, we only have less than 100 qubits. And if you focus on, on more specialized operations, where you don't require this universality, then, then we are up to 2,000. But in any case... Say, say that again, what, the, those particular figures? So when, when you look at this universal form of quantum computation, which, which is called the gate model quantum computer, we have less than 100 qubits. Gate model? Yeah, gate model. Okay. It's gate model because it generalizes digital computing. Mm-hmm. So in digital computing, you have logical Logic gates. Logic gates, right. Whereas here you have um, certain gates that transform distributions. And you can transform any distribution to any other distribution. That's why it is universal. Okay. Whereas the second paradigm is called quantum annealing. And mm-hmm. what quantum annealing does is a lot more specific calculation. It solves an optimization problem, and that's what it does. There's no requirement for universality, and therefore it is easier to build. So that architecture is, is now up to 2,000 qubits. Okay. But in any case, uh, what's happening here is that, first of all, you have just these few qubits, maybe 2,000, but that's still not that much. And second, you have then very unusual restriction. Imagine that you want to build a deep learning network but you are restricted to just 10 lines of Python code. Anything longer than that, and your deep learning network doesn't work. That's, <laughs> that's exactly what happens on a quantum computer. So we would, we would love to run very long algorithms on the quantum computer, but we are restricted just a few instructions. And what's the specific failure mode there? So the problem is that, that your quantum processor interacts with the environment, and this environment and this interaction is uncontrolled. So the longer you run an algorithm, the more this interaction happens and the less your calculation resembles what you want it to be. Mm. So you are restricted to very short uh, programs. So meaning these computers are extremely susceptible to noise, let's say, and the the programs themselves fundamentally degrade in a very short period of time. That's right, because every instruction that you execute takes some amount of time. So if you have longer and longer algorithms, you take up more time. So your quantum system just loses its coherence. And is that, going back to this uh, today versus 20 years from now, is that a limitation of where we are today or something fundamental to quantum? Like the the room temperature supercomputers that we create when we have the quantum computers allow us to solve this stability problem? It's it's a very long story. (laughs) So let, let, me, let me say two things to this question. The first one is that we can accept that this is how quantum computers work for the next 10 years. So there is an entirely new breed of quantum algorithms that target this paradigm. So what we do is we have a short burst of calculation on the quantum computer. Then we extract the results on a classical computer. We do some processing. 
and then we go back to the quantum hardware, do some tuning, again, run a short burst of calculation, and we do this iterative loop. Mm -hmm. And this is this hybrid classical quantum paradigm is what's going to give us the speed up that we're expecting over the next few years. And this is not going to be polynomial, it's not going to be exponential, but it's going to be some constant time factor. Mm -hmm. So that's what we are aiming at. So find the noise is there, it's going to be there at least for the next 10 years, mm -hmm. but we can work around it. Right. And, uh, and the second part of it is implementation. How you actually build a quantum computer. And nobody agrees what's the right answer to that question. So there are three major approaches today. One is uh, superconducting architecture, which is the easiest in the sense that you use the exact same silicon-based um, fabrication as you, as you use in every digital device that you have. The only difference is that you cool it down to near absolute zero. Otherwise, it, everything is the same. Mm -hmm. The second option is to use light and photons. This architecture has the advantage that uh, it doesn't have to be cooled down. So it works at room temperature, but it has its own disadvantages. Then the third option, and this is the coolest, is when you trap individual atoms in laser beams, and then you line <laughs> them up, and the interaction between these trapped uh, atoms is what does the calculation for you. So this is called a trapped ion quantum computer, and uh, this wow. also, also operates at room temperature. So it's, it's not everything is about cooling down. There are other okay. alternatives, but each and every one of these have their own advantages and disadvantages. Hmm. And nobody knows which one is going to win. So you refer to this 10, 20 lines of Python code in a couple of different contexts. Is that figurative, meaning we've only got a short amount of time that we can do some calculations? Or is that literal, like with the computers that we have today, these quantum devices that we have today, you can take 10 to 20 lines of Python code and actually do something on these devices? I can actually tell you that this is 15 lines of Python code. <laughs> okay. So I, I ran experiments, right? So, so I, I was uh, testing a whole bunch of different algorithms. And basically, if you go deeper than 15 uh, gates, then you have a very low probability mm -hmm. of recovering the quantum state that you want to have at the end. So your calculation no longer resembles what you wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. So it's literally 15 lines of Python code. And so you mentioned two main challenges. One is that we have limited qubits. Another is that uh, we've got limited capacity you know, from a time or lines of code perspective. Oh, but there's another one that I've uh, heard of is that a lot of these algorithms that we have uh, defined, these quantum algorithms, depend on not just quantum compute, but quantum RAM, and we don't know how to build that yet. No, I, I, don't, I don't deal with those algorithms, no. Okay. Um, that's, that's, that's really um, science fiction. So the, these hybrid classical quantum algorithms that I mentioned mm -hmm. do not need this quantum RAM. Okay. So here you start with some classical preparation and you end up with some classical preparation. Okay. So you don't need to access quantum states coming from some, some uh, storage. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a whole different challenge. I don't know how people will address it. Okay. We, we definitely need something like that for this holy grail quantum computers yeah. 20 years from now. Okay. But it, you know, it's not my turf. Okay, got it. You know, it's been very counterintuitive to me how, how and why this computing model that is 
you know, you described it as you've got some string of bits and then some probability distribution over some string of bits. Like, where do we get more power from this, you know, essentially this thing that's kind of sounds like what we have now, but with noise added or, you know, probabilistic noise added. And it sounds like a, a big part of, you know, A, kind of react to that characterization, but also a, a big part of the advantage is it sounds like that we can do a lot of things at once, like as opposed to serially doing things. And that's, like uh, that's yeah, that's quantum parallelism. But that, that doesn't really come from, from the quantum nature of the thing. It mm-hmm. comes from the, the probabilistic nature of things. That comes from this fact that you're transforming probability distributions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the quantum effects really start to play a role by, by exploiting the global nature of a problem and finding correlations there. That's, that's where the real power is coming from. from. So, so when, you, when you hear the word superposition, every time you hear the word superposition, just replace it by probability distribution. Mm-hmm. Because that's what it is. So to give you a very easy example, think about a digital computer that has two bits, okay? Mm-hmm. So then you can represent four numbers on them and you mm-hmm. can transform you know, any of these four numbers into another one by logical gates. And now on a, on a quantum computer, you would have two qubits, which means that you can have any probability distribution between, between these, these numbers. So you can have, say, the, the zero, zero string with probability 0.2, you can have the 0, 1 string with probability 0.3, and uh, the 1, 0 string with probability 1 half, and then the 1, 1 string with probability 0, right? And, and then you transform this distribution in a way you want it. So it depends on what you want to express. And that's what happens. So you have all these possibilities because you have a probability distribution on them, and instead of manipulating these qubits directly, you are manipulating the distribution over them. And that's what expresses your calculation. How do you get from that to kind of a more intuitive understanding of, of where the advantage comes from in that? You know, okay, let's, let's, let's walk through, again, a simple example. Yeah. So let's, let's stick with our two qubits, okay? Got it. There is something magical that you can do that you can absolutely cannot do with classical computers, classical digital computers. So every quantum computer that you can access today um, starts off from the zero, zero string. So you get zero, zero with probability one. That's your initial distribution. And then you, are, you can transform it in a way just by using two gates. So that every time when you look at one of the qubits, you can be absolutely sure that the other qubit is the same. So this is, this is uh, the, an example of entanglement. So just by measuring one part of the system, just by just, you know, just opening the box and looking at it from, from one part, we can already infer what the other is doing. And this is very exciting because now you can exploit this very strong form of correlation between two subsystems to do exciting things. This is how quantum teleportation works, for instance. This is how uh, quantum communication happens. So just by just exploiting so and this I is I feel like you started with this example of hey we're going to look at these two bits and they've got these very simple properties and then you like did the then a miracle occurs and we're teleporting <laughs> what's the 
What's the concrete, simple thing that you can do with these two bits by knowing about entanglement? Okay, so entanglement is just another way of saying very strong correlation. Right. And this correlation is much stronger than what you could you would be able to do classically. How can you get much stronger correlation than deterministic? So equality, so, right? So so that's that's the that's the magic of it, right? <laughs> so and and you can tell that there are certain inequalities called the Bell inequalities, which give limits to classical correlations. And if you violate a Bell inequality, that means that you are using entanglement to go beyond that set of correlations, and you get these really strong correlations between different subsystems. Like this would just imagine, okay, imagine that that you forget about digital computers. Mm-hmm. Just think about two coins. Mm-hmm. Okay, two biased coins, and then you're flipping them in two hands, mm-hmm. and then you look at one of them. Can you say anything about the other one? If they're entangled, yes. Well, but I'm talking about classical coins. No, no really? No, right. right? So, and then imagine that you have prior information, so you know the bias of the coins, the distribution. Yeah. Right. So, and and uh, for instance, you know that you know this is biased, so you get heads with 0.6 probability. Mm-hmm. And, and this one is also the same. Right. So what? if you flip this one enough, so now, you start so, to learn something about this one. Yeah. For instance, you know that their bias is the same, for oh, instance. Okay. Right. And then, so both have 0.6 bias uh, towards heads. So you flip it and, and then you get tails. Mm-hmm. Can you say anything about this? No. Well, you can because, you know, it's, it's 0.6 probability is heads. Well, you can so say if, something if, about if its intrinsic, it's intrinsic property, but not yes. about... So that's that's a correlation. They are correlated. They both have the same bias. Right. But just by looking at one side, you can't see anything about the other one. Right. Whereas with entanglement, that's exactly what you do. So if these two guys were, were maximally entangled, and then, and then you look at it and you see a zero, then you know that this guy is also zero. And the other way around, if you look at this and it's one, you know that this one is also one. Mm-hmm. So this is a very strong form of correlation that nature creates at this elementary level of particles. And this is what we exploit in quantum computation, uh, quantum communication, quantum teleportation, you name it. Okay. But what's the simplest example of how we can exploit this to do something concrete? I, or are I we mean, just not there yet? You, I mean, these this have been experimentally demonstrated okay so it's it's not that difficult and let's let's take a look at quantum teleportation mm-hmm. uh, it's on wikipedia it's very well explained but it still takes the circuit of a few gates but the idea is that in in teleportation you don't teleport material you teleport information mm-hmm. so say you have uh, some some qubit state and you want to teleport it from one register to another register Mm-hmm. Then what you do is is you entangle these registers, so you create very strong correlations be, uh, between them, and then you look at some subsystem, and based on what you observe there, then you do some operation on the register where you want to teleport to create that state in that register. So by entanglement, uh, you can you can infer information and create that information in a new place. So is entanglement an inherent? property of qubits or is it a, a property that we can kind of apply at will to qubits so so we definitely want to apply it at will right so this is this, is, this will be one property of of any quantum computer that we build 
uh, it's very unlikely that you get any advantage without, without using entanglement. And let's go back to the very beginning where I told you that, you know, just like in, in machine learning, we have these high dimensional spaces. Mm-hmm. But unlike in, in machine learning, this high dimensional space has a fine structure. And this fine structure is exactly uh, how the space decomposes into elementary qubits. Okay. And entanglement uh, is created by, by having some strange um, mathematical property between these, these subspaces. That's where it's coming from. That's the mathematical equivalent of it. So it's critically important that you have this fine structure. And you know, not just RN in machine learning where the fine structure is not interesting at all. So that's, that's where it is coming from. Mathematically, it's super easy. You can derive it in two lines and, and show you know, uh, that uh, some states cannot be written in a certain form and th- therefore they must be entangled. But it's a little bit counterintuitive when you first encounter it. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. takes a while to get used to this notion that, hey, this is just a weird way of writing strong correlations. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Rn, real space, and n dimensions. Yeah, uh, and and now here you have Cn, but this Cn has some fine structure. You know, is it that right? You started with the traveling salesman problem, which is mm-hmm. a you know concrete example of something that we want to do today, and we expect to be able to do on the the uh, quantum computer in twenty years. Is it that today? We can, you know, with the, the limited quantum computers that we've got accessible access to, that we can do kind of these toy things that demonstrate quantum properties, but, you know, not really anything that's practical. I, I disagree with that. So it was a question, not an assertion. Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, we can exploit entanglement and, and interference in, and, and, and you know, all these quantum effects in the quantum computer, computers we have today. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can experimentally validate that, yes, the quantum properties are there. There's actually quantum effects going on despite all the noise and all the imperfection. And then with these, with these hybrid classical quantum algorithms, mm-hmm. you can actually solve problems like the traveling salesman problem. So every single quantum computer out there can do optimization. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not this uh, like polynomially faster optimization that we right. will have twenty years from now. Right. But you can already use it, and you can solve traveling salesman type problems on quantum computers. When we first talked about traveling salesman, it's like the the way we solve this is by, I guess we haven't really talked about a quantum algorithm, and we've we've mentioned it, but we haven't talked about like what it is and what makes yeah. it a quantum algorithm, and, and maybe that's the, the the place that we need to go to get at this, but. When we first talked about traveling uh, salesman problem, the the quantum solution was that you know we, we solve the problem globally, you know, in an instant. I guess you're waving. I mean, I mean, you still have to run a quantum <clears throat> algorithm, right? And as I mentioned, yeah. that you are restricted to a few lines of code when you run, a, run it on a quantum computer, right? Because the full blown algorithm to solve uh, the traveling salesman problem faster would be a very deep algorithm. So it will still take some time. Okay. But on a good day, it will be faster than okay. a classical computer. Okay. Let me, let me uh, explain from a different <laughs> angle. Okay. Uh, I, I, you know, it's difficult to gauge the technical level that we can go into. But imagine that you have uh, two magnets. 
Yes. One magnet has a north face uh, pointing up. And then if you put the, the another magnet next to it, that will flip, right? So that will it will anti-align with the first one. Mm-hmm. So it will have south face pointing up. Now you can identify north face pointing up as a zero and the south face pointing up as a one. Mm-hmm. And now imagine that you have a whole series of these magnets, then each and every one of them will anti-align with its neighbors. So it's a very easy problem to solve, right? So nature just finds the, the energy minimum of this system very easily. Now imagine that you can vary the distance between the individual magnets. So some pairs will interact strongly if they are close to each other, and others will be further apart so they will not interact so, so strongly. Now to spice things up, add an external field that, uh, that can vary in strength. So it will flip some magnets, which, for instance, weakly interact with each other, and it will not influence others, which, which strongly interact because they are close to each other. So this is a physical system. You can actually build it. And it turns out that it's physically difficult to solve. So if you start from a random configuration of magnets, then nature might get stuck in a local optimum. So it might not find the lowest energy configuration because it doesn't have the energetic, um, well, the energetic requirements to, to flip over into the to optimal one. Mm-hmm. And when you think what it means in, in, uh, in computer science, this is a binary optimization problem. This is a quadratic binary optimization problem, which is known to be NP-hard. So it's, and actually you can map the traveling salesman problem to this quadratic optimization problem, binary optimization problem. It's a classical NP-hard problem. So there is this correspondence between what's computationally hard and what's physically difficult to solve. And now what, what a quantum computer can do, it can create a uniform distribution over all possible configurations of these magnets. Mm-hmm. And then you slowly transform this probability distribution to peak in probability over the optimal configuration. Hmm. That's how it works. And so... Maybe the what I'm struggling with is trying too hard to map the concepts that I'm familiar with in classical computing to the way you solve problems in quantum. Like I'm kind of looking for we've got these qubits, you know, we've got our ten lines of code. The ten lines are first do this, then do that, then do that, then do that, then do that. It's, and it's, it's a bit different. Yeah. And uh, so the, here's here's the difficulty. If you only focus on this quantum computer that we have in the, in the distant future, then you actually have to understand very little physics. Then you get away with a degree in computer science. Mm. But with the quantum computers we have today, you actually have to understand a lot more physics. So that's why I keep going back to this example of, of magnets, because it's a physical system and it's actually very close to what happens in a quantum annealer. So the quantum annealer actually starts from this uniform distribution over all solutions. And the annealing process means that the annealing is this transformation into this peaked probability distribution. And it's an actual physical process. It's not, it's not gates. It's, it's a physical trick called uh, the adiabatic theorem that achieves this. And um, then I mentioned that when it comes to gate model quantum computers, we have these hybrid classical quantum algorithms. Right? So that's why it's important that we have this iterative loop between a short burst of calculation of quantum hardware going back to the classical. So if you want to solve the exact same problem 
on a gate model quantum computer, so you want to create gates and Python instructions for, for doing this, what you actually do is you approximate this transition that a quantum annealer naturally does. And how you construct gates from them, that's a different story. But the, but the good news is that even if you just understand this high-level concept that, you know, we start from some uniform distribution and then we sample some peaked distribution to get the optimum, that's enough. Because you have, you have all sorts of high-level libraries that already implemented these quantum algorithms. So you can just use them as off-the-shelf solutions. And as long as you, can, you have a binary optimization problem, you can just use these quantum computers to solve them. And are there... Is there a, a library or catalog of known mappings of you know problems that we care about to binary optimization problems? Uh, there are many papers on that, mm -hmm. and um, like all of these um, quantum computing libraries mm -hmm. that are out there, they also give a couple of examples. And so, part of my research also focuses on like finding those machine learning algorithms or creating those machine learning algorithms that map naturally to these algorithmic primitives like optimization or sampling. Do you have a favorite machine learning, quantum machine learning algorithm? Well, obviously all of my papers. <laughs> so what are some of your some of your algorithmic papers? So the, okay. The, I, I also do research for fun. So for instance, I had a paper in June. With, the title was Bayesian Deep Learning on a Quantum Computer. Okay. So it's, it's a serious piece of research. So there are actual theorems proved in it and there are actual experiments in it. But it's a tongue-in-cheek paper. Okay. Because My this, favorite kind. Yeah. So because I was poking fun at the research community, how they do research in quantum machine learning. So I highlighted many, uh, many of the worst practices in this paper. Okay. So you can't really do deep learning on a quantum computer. That's the whole message of it. So, so I, have, I have these papers. So you have to look out. You have to understand the joke. Um, and nobody gets the joke about this paper, unfortunately. <laughs> you can't get it published. Uh, and um, a good example would be a paper that we put on Archive two years ago. So it's about uh, Markov logic networks, which combine good old-fashioned AI, so logical statements and logical inference, with uh, uncertainty in data. So these Markov logic networks have been around for, for a decade, but people don't really use them. And one of the reasons that you don't use them is because you can't train them efficiently. But if you can do sampling certain probability distributions on a quantum computer, that gives a um, phenomenal boost in, in the speed of training these Markov logic networks. And I think that's an excellent example of, of a machine learning algorithm using a quantum computer. Because here you are addressing a family of learning models that, that are just difficult, naturally difficult to train on a digital computer, and you enable them by using quantum resources. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one good direction for, for quantum machine learning research. Another one is that you know the, the quantum hardware very well. Mm -hmm. So you know the flaws, you know the advantages, you know everything about it. And then starting from the hardware, you take a look at what's a hard problem in machine learning. And then you try to match the two. What the hardware is capable of, of and what is, what is missing in machine learning research. And it's hard. And that's and why it, there, are, there, are, there are so few good papers, because you have to know quantum computing very well, and you have to know machine learning very well. Otherwise, you have mm -hmm. nothing to say. Mm -hmm. 
And it, it sounds like it's your not just understanding the limitations of the the quantum computer, but uh, also like it's it's quirks, like you're hacking it to to actually get you it to, to do something. Yeah, yeah, you have to. I think maybe another way to to state this earlier kind of challenge that, I, that I'm kind of poking around at is, you know, someone trained in kind of classical, you know, computer science, computer engineering, really, like there are a set of primitives that, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, what kind of language or, you know, whether you're talking about imperative programming or a functional program, it varies a little bit, but, you know, there are, you know, there are functions and loops and maps and like there are these kind of core basic structures that you can, you start with a, a problem. And if you've done this kind of enough, you, you know that, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll throw some recursion at this or throw some iteration at this and, and you can kind of engineer a solution um, that runs on this, you know, piece of hardware and are we there yet for quantum? Like, do we have those building blocks and do we have a methodology or, or something that do we even have visibility to being able to get to an engineering discipline for this? Or is it just, you know, we're not really there yet? We are getting there. So I, I would like to differentiate um, like research grade work in quantum computing and like application grade. So what I was talking about in the last few minutes was mainly research grade. Yeah. Right. So if you want to develop completely new quantum machine learning algorithms. Right. But most people don't. Right. So if you are just a machine learning engineer and you want to fool around with quantum computing, there are all these quantum computing libraries out there where, where there are these primitives, exactly these algorithmic primitives implemented that you can just call as a function. And one is optimization, other is sampling, and there are a few others. And then you have you can forget about all, all the quantum mechanics that goes into it. Mm-hmm. You can just understand, you know, what's what's the core signature of this function, what it returns, and that's it. The rest is a black right. box to you. Yeah, yeah. And I, but I think there's something there's something in between the two that uh, that is is interesting to me at least. That is, you know, not necessarily creating new. I don't. I guess I don't think of it as creating new algorithms per se, or like a research frontier. But it's also, you know, using the quantum, like the simplest, you know, cases of being able to use the quantum properties of of a quantum computer, and not totally abstracting that into some high level library. Right. So you know what what is in that in that twilight zone? Yeah. 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 Okay. So so let let me do a shameless plug. I firmly believe that this is easy to explain, but it okay. takes a while. <laughs> so I'm creating a, a massively open online course on, on quantum machine learning where I'm doing exactly this. Okay. I'm opening the, uh, the black box. Okay. So I want people to understand uh, quantum computing better, uh, make it less scary, and understand some of the mechanics that go into developing these, these learning algorithms. And so the way I structured it is, is uh, it's very hands-on. So I had machine learning professionals in mind. Uh, so the requirements for enrolling in this course are uh, linear algebra and Python. Okay. So what I do is uh, I have you know, a bit of mathematics, a bit of physics, and a bit of code. 
So the, the course material is only going to be distributed in, in Jupyter Notebooks plus, plus the videos that come with the course. So you can see everything in the same place. So first you understand that, you know, a quantum state that can be described by a density matrix, which is a Hermitian matrix that's positive, and that's very abstract, it's very mathematical. And I give some physical intuition why we need this form of description of, of a quantum state. And then you can see it in code, how it works, because that helps you opening the black box and getting a better intuition how it works. Mm -hmm. And I really think that these three the, like the mathematical side, the physical side, and the computational side have to go hand in hand. Interesting. And how, how far along is this course? So it's, it's uh, going to start uh, for the first cohort in February 2019. Oh, nice. So that's yeah, pretty close. It's going to be on edX, and it's going to be free to enroll. Okay. You only have to pay if you want a certificate. But, you know... Even if you enroll for free, you get access to the full content. Okay, interesting. We'll be we'll definitely be tracking that. And so maybe one more kind of question on uh, the the quantum algorithm side. Uh, we mentioned briefly before we got started the uh, the work of Ewan Tang, who is uh, a, a, a student who got some notoriety earlier in the year when. Uh, I recently interviewed her. Uh, it's not been published yet, and um, I have to figure out like how to sequence these two conversations so they make sense for folks listening. But the idea is that you know we hold up these examples of quantum algorithms of you know why quantum computing is going to be so uh, important, and uh, what her undergraduate thesis did was say, well, you know, this example of why this thing is so important, well, yeah, we can actually get the benefit of this on conventional computers. And uh, it sounds like uh, that's been happening at a relatively rapid clip, like kind of de, um, uh, de-quantifying, I don't know what the right way to say it is, but, you know, kind of taking down these examples of why quantum is going to be so important. Uh, what, what's your response to, to that? It's it's really difficult not to be a huge fan of her. She's just <laughs> fantastic. She's she's going after one algorithm after the other and, and just destroys them. It's brilliant. So so here's here's the problem. People have been talking about this absolutely horrific thing called uh, quantum supremacy. Uh -huh. It sounds like some some fascist thing, right? And um, but the, the thing is that when you claim an exponential advantage with a quantum algorithm, there are many ways of doing that claim. So, and the usual claim is that it's exponentially faster than any known classical algorithm, mm -hmm. as opposed to exponentially faster than any possible classical algorithm. Mm -hmm. That's a very hard proof to do. Mm. And, and I'm actually not aware of any such proof. It's always compared to the best known classical algorithm. And part of the problem goes back to how different quantum computation is from uh, digital. Because, you know, in, in digital computing, we have P, we have MP, these uh, computational classes, and, and, they are, and we understand these computational classes reasonably well, although not necessarily all the relations. And in quantum computing, we have completely different computational classes. So like the, the sort of the equivalent of, of P, polynomial time algorithms, in quantum computing is something called BQP, which is bounded error quantum polynomial, which the error is there. And the error is there because the calculations are probabilistic. 
So it, it's never going to be an apples to apples comparison because one is a deterministic paradigm and the other is quintessentially probabilistic. So what she has been doing, she has been exploring these, these probabilistic algorithms, these random algorithms on, on classical digital computers and subsampling and using these tricks to achieve uh, the same error rates as these BQP quantum algorithms do and saying that, hey, <laughs> not so fast. <laughs> not so fast. So it's 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 fantastic work. It's 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 a it's a beautiful body of work that she already has. I think she already has three papers or so, but uh, but they made quite a splash in her in her first semester of grad school. Now, yes, yes. it's it, it's impossible not to be impressed by her work. Yeah, but this uh, this hybrid classical quantum computer is not really in danger because it never claimed. These these big gaps, like polynomial. Yeah, I I don't use that word. Yeah, and and I I usually refer to some some quantum advantage. That's my right. most precise definition of what we can expect. Okay, and um, and we are looking at you know this constant time speed ups, and it I find it unlikely that you can disprove that. Okay, interesting, interesting. So uh, I might otherwise ask. How does someone learn more? But we covered that. Hold on until February yeah, and right. uh, take a look at your course. And we'll do you have like a landing page or something? Uh, I think or? It's, it's going to be announced officially in a couple of days. And oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So by the time this podcast is published, we will be able to link to some kind of landing page or sign up or something. Yeah. Um, and I know there's a lot of interest in our community on this topic. We had a, a meetup about this uh, where one of our uh, community members, Nick Teague, who's done some writing about this, it, it kind of presented a, an overview slash intro to quantum machine learning. And just people want to know more about, like we hear about this, we want to know, you know more about this, how to how we might use it, uh, what the current state is. Um, and every time I do an interview about it, it's like it's changed a little bit. Um, so I think folks will be interested in in kind of following what you're doing. So thanks so much for taking the time to chat Thank with me. Thank you so me. much. So I did what I always say not to do is hit uh, stop before the before we were totally, totally done. And we got into this interesting potential side conversation around what's unsatisfying for me about the conversation we just had is that like you start with this premise that with 15 lines of code, you can do something interesting. And so there's part of me that wants to, it's only 15 lines of code. Let's just walk through these 15 lines of code and I should kind of be able to understand them and then maybe change a line of code or two and then like have a new algorithm or have this feeling that I can create something with quantum. Uh, okay. But we, we didn't quite get there. Okay, so let, let, me, let me try <laughs> explain how it works. So the easiest example goes back to optimization and, uh, and quantum annealing. So I mentioned that quantum annealing is based on this uh, physical process of changing this uniform distribution into this peaked one. So with a high probability, you read out the optimal configuration of, say, element, some elementary magnets. And when you implement the same idea on a gate model quantum computer, uh, you basically discretize this uh, physical process. And these discrete steps 
are, are the ones that provide the lines of code that you execute uh, on a quantum computer. So we are in this hybrid classical quantum scheme, which means that we have this short burst of calculation executing these 15 lines of code. Then we extract the result and we do some processing on the CPU, then go back and tune some parameters. And parameters are the key here. So what happens is that you have gates, gates correspond to a line of, a gate corresponds to a, a line of code, and these gates are parametric. So you can change something in, in how they work. And you start with some random initialization of these parameters in a very similar way how you would randomly initialize a deep learning network when you start training it. And that's and something very similar happens. So you, you run uh, your, your parametric gates, you get some results, and you're looking, in this case, you're looking for the optimum solution of some function. So you get some result, it's gonna be some number. And what you do with the classical CPU is a gradient descent over the parameters. So you go back to the quantum hardware, you change the, the parameters according to the direction of the gradient, and you run the circuit again, you get some result, ideally, ideally it's lower than before, and you just follow the gradient. And uh, the gates do non-trivial things. So they do interference, they do entanglement, uh, but they are parametric. So that's, that's the, the classical knob that you can turn. So then the, the challenge with kind of explaining these 15 line of codes independent of understanding the underlying physics is that each of the 15 lines of code is a parameterized line of physics. That's right. Okay. That is exactly correct. Okay. Is the 15 lines of code, is there any kind of resemblance in terms of structure like we might see in a classical program? Like, is it, you know, 15 lines of code, but there's like a, a loop or is it just 15 lines of code of straight through transformations of the applications of these different gates? There are no loops on a quantum computer. Okay. <laughs> what happens is that, you know, a quantum computation is always, always a transformation of probability distributions. Mm. And what you are doing here is, is not just that these gates are parametric, but they follow a pattern. And the way it works is one parametric gate pushes things into this uniform distribution and the other the, the subsequent gate pushes them towards the right solution. So you keep going back between pushing them into something uniform and then trying to peak the distribution. Mm -hmm. And the reason you do this is to explore the full space of probabilities. So if you did not have this alternation between trying to, to flatten the distribution out and then peaking it, then, then you would end up with some local optimum. But because you do this alternation, you will eventually find the right spot by tuning these parameters in each and every one. And is there an analogy in, you know, forget about computing, classical digital computing, is there an, anal an analogy in just probability that might be something that we're more familiar with where we kind of successively apply these distributions to get to 
you know, to do this peaking? Or is it a, an inherently quantum thing? That's a very good question. And the answer to this is that um, a quantum computation is, is, in a sense, a generalization of what you do with uh, stochastic vectors and stochastic matrices. So if you are familiar with the theory of uh, Markov chains and Monte Carlo methods, you will find many concepts familiar. The language is different, but what the operations do are actually similar. So a stochastic vector is, is just your classical probability distribution written as a form of a vector. Right. And the stochastic matrix ensures that if you apply this matrix on this vector, then the result is also a probability distribution. It's also a stochastic vector. And uh, you know that you know, if, if, you're, if your stochastic matrix has certain properties and you have some Markov chains uh, starting from some initial random string, then after a burning period, it will converge right. to, to, to some distribution. So that's, that's somehow very similar to what happens in a quantum computer. Mm. Interesting. And, and the equivalent of this stochastic matrix is exactly this decomposition into gates. So these gates add up to something called a unitary operation, and this unitary operation is the equivalent of a stochastic matrix. And so each column in the stochastic matrix, is, well, this, so this... In a left stochastic matrix, I think the <laughs> columns add up to one. Uh, I think that's that's the definition. So each of these columns is like a, a transformation of the distribution of your stochastic vector. Yeah. But that's not a gate because you've also got, um, there's like two dimensions uh, okay, of freedom. So, okay. Well, there's like yeah, these. Okay, okay. So yeah, there's, there's an element <laughs> missing here. I admit that. Okay, so. Leaky abstractions. Yes, leaky, leaky <laughs> abstractions. That's exactly what it is. So let's let's uh, go back for a split second to, to digital circuits. Yeah. Okay, so we know that we can start from any bit string and go to any other bit string, right? Mm-hmm. In this sense, digital computers are universal. And you can decompose this transformation between the two bit strings into logical gates. In fact, you only need two logical gates to do any operations. For instance, every single digital circuit that you have uses a XORs not and end gates. So okay. NAND gates. Yeah. That's all you need to be a universal in a digital computer. Mm-hmm. What's extremely surprising is that even though uh, a quantum computer transforms these continuous valued probability distributions, it can also be decomposed into elementary gates. And three gates are enough to be universal. Mm. So what you do is that you know, instead of a stochastic matrix, you have this unitary matrix. And by this fantastic theorem, you can actually decompose them into these elementary gates. So these elementary gates correspond to either two by two matrices or four by four matrices. A two by two matrix will act on a single qubit, a four by four matrix will act on two qubits. Hmm. Which is making me think that there's maybe some notion of a quantum convolution somewhere. There is something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you can do Fourier transformations and all of this. Okay, okay. This was a very satisfying outtake. Okay. No idea how I'm going to stitch it into the thing, but the the I think this, at least for me, the kind of analogy to a Markov chain and like stochastic vectors is satisfying. Um, that's, that's exactly how I'm going to explain it in the MOOC. It's already done. Okay. <laughs> 
Well, then I'm glad I kept poking at it. Yeah. Um, all right. So we don't need to end this twice. Thanks so much. Uh, this Thank was you. awesome. <laughs> All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.